companies regularly spend vast sums of money on advertising in an effort to persuade consumers to buy their products. 30 years ago, this mostly meant taking out an ad in a print newspaper, between TV shows, or on a billboard in town. Today, it more likely means placing ads next to Google search results, or in between videos on YouTube. The internet as we know it is built on this type of digital advertising. But have you ever wondered whether digital advertising really works? How do brands know that consumers are being influenced by their ads? And do the spiralling costs of purchasing digital ads really reflect their value? According to Tim Huang, a writer, researcher and thought leader on technology policy, the answer is that they don't. In his provocative new book, Subprime Attention Crisis, Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet, he argues that the digital advertising market looks a lot like the subprime mortgage market back in 2007, an overheated and overvalued asset bubble that must be deflated now before the economic and social costs grow too large. You're listening to the Technology and Prose podcast. I'm your host, Nikita Agarwal, and on today's show, I'm joined by Tim to talk about his new book and its implications for the future of the internet. Tim, welcome to Technology and Prose. Great, thanks for having me on the show. Your new book exposes the largely hidden vulnerabilities in the programmatic advertising market. To start off with, can you explain what programmatic advertising is um, and how does it fit into the broader advertising ecosystem? Sure, absolutely. Um, So programmatic advertising is really the way advertising is done today on the internet. Um, It is sort of the market, it is the business model that really drives and um, makes money for the world's largest companies, right? Whether you're a Facebook or a Google, um, you know, you make money through programmatic advertising. And programmatic advertising is, is Quite simple to understand, actually, um, and everything is sort of in that phrase, programmatic and advertising. Right. So let's take the the second word first. Um, you know, ultimately, it's a way of buying and selling attention online, and in that respect, it's very similar to every other earlier generation of of advertising. You have uh, people with attention to sell. Uh, these are frequently called publishers in the ad economy. Uh, so this can be a website. Uh, this can be a, a, a social media platform. Uh, anywhere where there's sort of attention where you want to be able to sell and monetize it. And on the other hand, there's ad buyers, right? People who will pay good money to basically put messages in front of the people uh, who are paying attention to something uh, online. And that's the way advertising has always worked, right? Whether or not you're selling a billboard or a telev- television commercial, um, you know, this is, this is the, the structure of the market. But what's unique about how it works online is that it is programmatic uh, in nature, hence programmatic advertising. Um, and really what that is, is it's a marketplace for moving uh, attention, buying and selling attention extremely, extremely quickly and at very, very large scale. And the way it works is that when you sort of click on a website, right, um, essentially a split second auction takes place between the moment at which you click the link and when the website loads. Um, and essentially the way programmatic advertising works is that the publisher says, okay, I have an opportunity to give an ad, show an ad to Tim, right, as he's about to load this website. Um, and then there's an auction that takes place uh, where algorithms for various, representing various ad buyers, uh, basically bid for the right to show me an ad. And depending on who wins um, that auction, um, an ad is sort of delivered to me when the website loads. 
Um, and this is done billions of times every single day um, and, and really is kind of the core of programmatic advertising. So to kind of quickly sum up, programmatic advertising is really sort of the buying attention, uh, buying and selling of attention online, um, sort of through algorithms uh, online. I see. And, and so who are the big players in this market? Yeah, sure. So there are uh, the core of it is uh, kind of two groups. Um, one of them is sort of like the big sort of tech platforms, right? So these are really your kind of like Facebooks and Googles of the world. And they're frequently referred to in the industry as the duopoly uh, because they control such a large segment of programmatic advertising. And the way to think about these companies is that they're sort of like um, publishers that also sell their own uh, ad advertising inventory, right? So for example, Google has lots and lots of people coming to Google every single day to search on its search engine. And as a result, it is sort of a mega publisher, right? It has a huge amount of attention it can, it can sell and it runs sort of its own infrastructure. Um, and then the second group is really kind of like ad technology, which is if you're not a Facebook or Google, but you are a, you know, a website, right? You're, you're a BuzzFeed or you're a New York Times and you really want to sell ads. Um, you can distribute it through companies that basically offer the sort of ad technology to buy and sell uh, sort of ads um, uh, as a third party, essentially. And, and that's kind of the second group that really plays in the space. I see. So, so we've got this kind of marketplace for attention um, with various players on, on the kind of buy and sell side. Um, so why do you say that then this, is, this attention is subprime? Like what is the, the root of the title of your book? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's really referring to two things. Um, one of them is I think that the argument of the book is in part that if you look at the history of market bubbles, um, uh, it turns out that there's a couple unhealthy uh, sort of unhealthy dynamics that characterize everything from the subprime mortgage crisis to, you know, the savings and loan crisis of a number of decades back. Um, and, and the argument is really that those dynamics are present in the modern day ad market. Right. And so it's, it's sort of subprime in that sense. Right. Uh, I also use subprime to, to mean that the sort of actual inventory, the quality of the inventory that's being bought and sold. Now, when I say inventory, I really mean the sort of attention that is being bought and sold in these marketplaces uh, is really declining over time quite considerably. And so that what we think is really valuable uh, in the advertising market may be worth uh, much less than we've been led to believe. So give us an example. Like, um is all of the attention being sold just less valuable or is there so, are there some products, some areas where it's still valuable to advertise and others where it's not? So the, the problems are manifold, I would say, in the advertising market. Um, and there's a couple of things that you can consider in thinking about why advertising is sort of worth less uh, than, than you might think. Um, you know, one of them is actually that just people are paying less attention to the biggest categories of ads online. So one of the metrics that I cite in my book, which I think is fascinating, right, is that when banner ads first made an appearance on the internet, uh, they generated click-through rates on the order of like 44%, right? Um, and that's really incredible, right? That means that close to half of the people that saw the ad were interested enough in it that they clicked on it. Um, nowadays, the average sort of banner ad, you, you're really surprised if you can generate more than 0.03%, right, uh, of, of click-throughs. Um, and that's really interesting to me because that means basically in a 30-year time frame, uh, the sort of arguably the effectiveness of these ads has declined, you know, a hundredfold, right? And one explanation for that is that we may just be paying attention less to sort of the types of ads that are really the kind of biggest segments of the ad market. Now, there's a lot of other problems, but I think that's a good kind of clear example of like one area in which, you know, the value of this ad inventory may be declining over time.
I see. So, okay. So banner ad banner ads are no longer as useful as they were 30 years ago, but are there other types of advertise, digital advertising that have taken their place and that are, are effective? Well, so this is some of the really sort of interesting debates right now, because a lot of the problems that I point out in the book are kind of, they're well known, right? Um, uh, but what's really interesting is that the attempts to kind of create something that uh, is is able to substitute, right, that is able to provide money at the same scale and speed as the two largest kind of segments of online advertising, that is to say search ads and display ads, uh, it's, it's been very difficult to find, right? So I think there, there's, there's an attempt to kind of innovate past the problem, um, but, but the ad economy really hasn't hit on that next thing just yet. Uh, and so I think there really are questions as to whether or not sort of these new channels that may have less problems will really be able to replace the kind of legacy uh, business model in, in the ad economy. Yeah, and so in the book you say, and I quote, the data and algorithms being used in targeting ads are garbage, which is, <laughs> um, which is quite an indictment. Um, but so what I'm wondering is, well, if, if, if it's garbage, why mm -hmm. are people still paying for it? Yeah, so this is actually one of the great sort of like arguments that uh, I, I have heard since the book has come out, right? Which is basically like, okay, so, so people put money into this market. Doesn't it, doesn't it work? Doesn't that prove that it works uh, in some ways? And, you know, I'm actually not so sure, right? Because I, I do think that, again, this sort of history of financial bubbles suggests to me a world in which people can put in lots and lots of money to a market that fundamentally is, is broken, right? So in the subprime mortgage crisis of 2000, 2007, uh, you know, there was basically this idea that, you know, mortgages would never fail um, and that they were such a sure thing that you should put money into it. And I, I do actually think that they're the same thing is sort of playing out in the ad economy as well, right? Where basically, like, no one has been ever fired for buying Google ads, right? Uh, and it is sort of considered like the reliable thing to put money into. Um, and, and I think it incentivizes the movement of a lot of money in that direction, right? But I don't think we should necessarily take that as a sign that it definitely works. Um, and so, so I guess that would be my response to the critics that kind, of, that kind of try to make the argument that because there is money coming in, it's sort of proof positive that, that this, this market is functional. Right. Um, so so let's, think, let's talk a bit more about the analogy um, with... With subprime, I think that's kind of the central theme, if you like, in your book, and it's a really compelling analogy. Um, so, so what, one thing that you just said is that there was uh, people putting money into sort of subprime, this kind of excessive confidence or you know, irrational exuberance. Um, would we sort of say that there is a similar kind of exuberance, but maybe this is this is about technological solutionism or then this belief that you can quantify everything? Like, what are the what is the equivalent of the exuberance back in two thousand and eight um, now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's there's sort of two things that are really playing out here. Um, one of them is basically that there is, you know, in some ways, let me back up, right? Like, I do think that there is sort of this very intuitive argument, right? Which is, okay, if I have more and more data about people, if I can target them, you know, better and better, well, shouldn't I be able to make my ads more and more effective, right? Um, and, and I think that has been a very seductive myth that we've bought into. Um, but it's actually interesting that the evidence doesn't really necessarily, you know, back that up, right? Um, you know, some of the studies that, that have been conducted on this sort of suggest that, uh, you know, frequently what we're doing when we're targeting ads more and more effectively is that we're able to identify people who would have bought the product anyways. So that there's actually a really funny thing where we target ads, but those ads are, are not really effective at the margin. But we do tend to confuse basically correlation with causation. Um, and, and that actually is a really powerful thing. Uh, another thing that you might find interesting is that there was a, 
been a, a, a study that came out, uh, the ICO, UK's, the UK's privacy regulator, just did sort of their postmortem on the sort of Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that come out of that report is basically the conclusion that all of this kind of psychographic ad targeting, right, this kind of much vaunted ability to use the data to target these ads, um, may not actually have had a material effect, right, on, on the electoral process. Now, that's not to say what they did was, was good, right, or to condone what they did. Uh, but it, I think it certainly makes us question our assumption that, you know, sort of data and algorithms really are the way to finally make ads, you know, truly effective, truly persuasive, and, and to really kind of create a sort of like modern day mind control device. We can, we can argue that there's sort of overhyped expectations when it comes to digital advertising and its ability to, you know, shift an election. But surely it's still more effective than analog advertising, like a billboard on a highway that we don't really know who's, who's even seeing it. Well, yes, yes, possibly, right? Actually, I mean, there, there actually is evidence that kind of even questions that assumption, right? That like, is, is say, like television that much better or worse than digital advertising, right? Um, and, you know, actually, one of the things that you may find interesting here is um, that there has been a study that sort of suggests that essentially because the effect of advertising is so small, uh, even online, um, the basically the kind of experiments that we need to conduct in order to figure out whether or not they work or not from a causal standpoint is is at such a large scale um, that in practice most people don't do it at all, right? Um, and I, so I think that's really interesting, right? Like we are still kind of in this sort of like veil of ignorance, but it's also partially driven by the fact that like online ads are just not as effective as they think we th we think they are. They're potentially more trackable in some ways, um, but but uh, again the effect is so small that like. It's actually an open question, I think, as to whether or not they are more or less effective than, say, a billboard or something like that. And you cite some interesting evidence in the book, um, I believe, from Procter and Gamble and New York Times, maybe a couple of others, who uh, they reduced their spending on digital advertising and it, it, it improved outcomes. Uh, yeah, that's actually one of the, the great stories, right? It's not by no means it's a controlled experiment, right? So I, I always tend to like want to be careful with anecdotal evidence, right? But I do think that we do have these very indicative anecdotes, right? Where, so Procter & Gamble about two years ago decided that they would cut about $200 million out of our digital ad spending. Um, and a year later, they sort of reported that there was no noticeable effect in, in anything, right? In fact, because they were had some cost efficiencies, right? They really had to figure out how to allocate their money. Um, they, they actually reported that the reach of their advertising was actually slightly up about 10%. Um, and, and I think there's a broader point, if I can get in here, right, that, that it's, it's often easy for us to get caught in this sort of philosophical debate, which is, do online ads work or not? But I think we often forget that there's so many places where the online advertising market can go wrong, even before you get to that question, right? So, you know, there's a first question, just like, does an ad actually get to a person or not? Right. And, and there's a huge amount of ad fraud online. So there's first a question about just like whether or not you're actually delivering it to a real consumer. And then once it's delivered to a consumer, there's a question of like, is that person blocking ads or not? Right. And that's like another layer. Um, and then like after you go to that point, it's like, is the ad actually on a place on a website where someone actually sees it? Right. And Google did a study a few years back that suggests that like maybe a huge number of ads are actually just never seen online. And then only then do you get to finally like getting to the question of like, oh, are these ads actually persuasive? And I think all these other problems that kind of layer on top of the ad economy uh, are also one reason why they may be not as effective, even though we say have more data and it is more trackable. That's so interesting. Um, and it really kind of goes against the grain of much of the conversation in the past sort of you know, four or five years around um, online manipulation and the attention economy. Um, I mean, does your book kind of like pull the rug 
out from under those 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 discussions? It, it does, yeah. And I think one of the really interesting sort of kind of perverse outcomes of the book, which I think has been actually really fun seeing it kind of out in the world and the argument kind of like being discussed, um, is, is I think whether you're a techno-optimist, right? Someone who's like, yes, this technology works and we can persuade people to do whatever we want them to do. Or you're a tech critic, right? You're like, ah, oh, these companies are terrible. Um, one thing you have to agree on is the effectiveness of the technology. Um, and so I do think that like for people who are, say, worried about um, you know, the, the influence of sort of like political messaging driven through micro-targeting online. Um, I think this book asks some hard questions as well. It says, actually, should we question our assumptions about like, do we actually, is it actually true, right, that all of this stuff really is being able to sort of like manipulate public discourse in the way that we think? Um, and so, so yeah, I think it, it does sort of pull the rug out, but it's, it's, it's sometimes it cuts both ways, right? It cuts both to the people who are very bullish on the technology and then people who are like very, very sort of worried about the technology as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I'm kind of wondering how much of this is intentional? Like, is this, you know, how egregious is this problem? Are advertisers being intentionally missold consumer attention? What you say is garbage. Um, and is it fraudulent or is it just like, ignorance and kind of the inherent like vagueness of the advertising industry generally like we don't really know how to measure attention we don't really know how you influence a consumer because it could be totally um, abstract yeah I I mean so I think that there's two things going on right um, and and you know I think in the first place uh, I think there are people who are aware of these problems but have very very strong incentives to sell a different story um, Right. Uh, if you are a if you are a Google, right, you are a Facebook, or you're even one of these ad tech companies. I think you have a lot of incentive to try to sell how great your advertising is, right? Um, and so I do think that there is some complicity here, right? That there's like a sort of knowing deception going on in some cases. Um, but I think also there's just sort of like willful ignorance, right? Like imagine you are a digital advertiser that runs a small digital ads agency. And you just spent the last 15 years, right, like really touting this technology. I think it's very hard to come around to the idea that what you worked on is maybe no better than what came before. Um, and so I do think that there's kind of a combination of sort of malice and willful ignorance that are kind of, you know, pushing this economy along. And, and again, I think it's, it's, it's echoes of 2007, 2008 again, right? Like, I do think that like, you know, not everybody in the subprime mortgage market was like, we're out to get, you know, we're out to get everybody. Um, there were those people, right? But I think there's also a lot of people who just genuinely didn't want to know. They didn't want to ask deeper questions because of what it would imply. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating how, how many parallels there are and like you draw them out really effectively um, in the book. But it's a, I mean, to continue the analogy, like back in 2007, 2008, of course, some of the um, selling of subprime mortgages uh, was you know, to people who clearly couldn't afford it was um, fraudulent. Um, there, there was mis-selling um, and there were there was some legal action taken, not necessarily um, with the sort of penalties we would we would have liked to see have seen. Um, I mean, has there been any legal action in the context of the uh, subprime attention market? Uh, any cases against companies for mis-selling advertising space? Yeah, there has been litigation actually. A, a lot of it has been settled outside of court. Um, but but yeah, actually, I mean, so um, the the Rubicon case, if I'm remembering the name right, was from a few years back, where where the Guardian basically sued an ad tech company, uh, sort of for misrepresenting what it was doing. Um, and and yeah, so so there, there has been litigation uh, in this in this space. Um, 
And, and I do think what's really interesting, but that's been very much like civil litigation, right? Uh, I think one of the most interesting developments that we've seen is that regulators uh, in the US are starting to ask about sort of like inaccurate uh, advertising data. Um, and, and it sort of suggests to me that there's a re sort of renewed interest potentially in, in you know, bringing something a little bit more fundamental uh, against these companies for, for what's going on. Yeah, so on the topic of regulation, I mean, what is it is one of the problems that the market is just grossly un, under-regulated right now? Like, what does the regulatory landscape for advertising look like nowadays? Yeah, I think it's it's sort of interesting. Um, you know, I was talking to this technology journalist who, you know, it, it has been in the space for a very long time, and he made this observation to me, which is basically that, um, you know, it's sort of interesting that, you know, we always report on the coolest, newest products, right, that the technology industry is, like, uh, producing. But we don't actually talk a whole lot about, like, what's happening in the world of ad technology. And I think it's because it's complicated, it's wonky, frankly, it's kind of boring, right? Uh, and I do think that, like, all of those factors have given it the ability to have a little bit of an invisibility cloak particularly to regulators, right? Because it has just been just something that has like not really captured headlines uh, in a way that is an incentivized action. Um, uh, but I think we now live in a world where I think we're generally trying to confront the question of what do we do about the modern internet? And what do we do about these like, you know, very powerful technology platforms? And so I do think that there's, there's kind of suddenly incentive to look into these problems in a way that hasn't been before. And so I think as, you know, sort of governments around the world start looking at things like antitrust, um, I think this stuff will inevitably become part of the discussion. So do you think the problem can be regulated away? Like, can we just, um, you know, impose more restrictions on the programmatic advertising market? And so we kind of bring it back down to size or is that not enough? Yeah, you know, I, I was joking with a friend the other day. I was like, we're, we sort of need to climb up like Maslow's hierarchy of, of markets, right? And like right now, I feel like we're still stuck in like the bottom level, right? Which is actually just like very difficult to understand what's going on in the marketplace. Um, and it's in large part because like the companies have been very reticent to reveal information about what's going on. So the, the famous case here is basically that like a few years back, uh, Facebook basically went out and said, hey, uh, we want everybody to pivot to video. And the reason we want you to pivot to video is because we see that there's a lot of Facebook users that are spending huge amounts of time watching video on Facebook. And it turned out that basically a few years later, because there has been litigation, um, right, that those no numbers were overstated by Facebook by about 60 to 80%. Now, I, I would say regardless of whether or not you think it was intentional or just plain sort of gross negligence, um, you know, I, I do think that it, it indicates that it's very difficult for us to understand like what's real and what's not in this marketplace and get a sense of like how healthy the marketplace is. And so that's a very long way of returning to your original question, right? Which is to basically say that I think there's room in the marketplace for us to just get a better sense of like what's going on and sort of compel the sort of signals, the data that we have about the market to be a little bit more grounded in reality. Um, and, and I think if we get there, it, it starts to resolve a lot of these problems. Now, I, I don't necessarily believe that like regulation is going to get us the whole way, but I think it's a very good start just because the market seems to not be necessarily producing, you know, I think what I call in the book sort of like the necessary incentives for, for candor uh, in the space. Right. And so I want to I get back to the, um, the kind of what we can do question a bit later. But before, before that, um, I want to discuss kind of like what are the alternatives and kind of what advertising means for the sort of structure of the internet. Um, you know, you, your concern is not just with the um, subprime attention crisis as sort of creating vulnerabilities um, 
in the infrastructure that sort of underpins the internet. Um, but you also take aim or you object to the sort of like incentives created by an advertising driven internet. And you've written that advertising is complicit in restricting the grammar of social interaction online. Explain what you mean by that. I'm great. I'm really glad you're asking that question because I, I think it's actually sometimes lost in the sort of discussion that's been around the book so far, right? Where again, I think like we we immediately go to this kind of like very abstract, a little bit philosophical question, which is do ads work and what makes them effective, right? And and I think one observation I would make is regardless of whether or not ads are effective or not, the fact that we've built a huge internet infrastructure around the idea that they do work. Um, can have some very real sociological impacts, right? And so the example I always give is that, like, you can think about almost anything you see online as being sort of shaped by the incentives of advertising. Um, so, you know, the example that seems clearest in my mind is like the like button, right? Why do we have a favoriting button or a like button on every single social media platform? Well, one reason is because it's very difficult to try to evaluate in a quantitative sense whether or not someone liked a piece of content. So the most sort of single brain cell way of getting that is just create a button where someone indicates that to you. And it's incredibly useful both for evaluating the effectiveness of certain types of messages, but it's also really effective for building profiles, right? With a collection of all these likes, I can figure out whether or not you uh, like watching football or you like science fiction or, or what have you. Um, and so what I mean by sort of complicit in restricting sort of the grammar of these social media platforms and, and sort of the internet in general is that the features that we have been given as users uh, have been sort of defined by, driven by, uh, cemented in by um, advertising. Um, and I think that comes with all sorts of impacts on sort of the nature of discourse online um, and the kind of internet that we live in. Um, and so, so again, I think that there's there's these two sort of independent questions that are related, right? One is the question of ad effectiveness, but regardless of ad effectiveness, we can also ask questions about sort of the internet that advertising has created and, and what it what it has caused more generally. And so is this the world that Google built? Like how how did we get to an, uh, an internet that is basically driven by advertising? Yeah, I, I actually do think it is the world that sort of Google built. Um, you know, obviously people had been trying to monetize the internet in a lot of different ways before Google came along. And, and advertising was a component of sort of like the 90s, 80s walled gardens, right? Like a, an AOL, uh, you know, your CompuServe's of the world. Uh, th th those did feature advertising as part of the business model. But what's really interesting is that Google was the first company to really make advertising programmatic, right? In the sense that basically when you're delivering lots and lots of search results, you can't necessarily sell ads manually, right? You can't say, oh, you want to buy an ad, you know, over the phone, you know, you want to buy an ad against the search term cars? Well, okay, cool. We'll put an ad on that for you, right? The only way to scale a search engine because you have so many different search terms coming in is to create a marketplace where people can autonomously sort of buy and sell uh, and, and bid for ads. And so, yeah, Google was really the first company to kind of like iron out what the programmatic advertising model would look like. And in part, because they were able to, pilot it so successfully, right? It created this like waterfall of cash for them. Uh, it really has been a model that other people have copied, right? And trying to monetize their own platforms. And I think there's a certain level of path dependence now, just because I think we're, we're sort of, sort of, you know, I think like the, the Silicon Valley is in some way sort of like addicted to the idea that they could grow at the same rate as a Google, um, that, that programmatic advertising in some ways is sort of like a go-to business model in many cases for many platforms. Yeah. And you write in the book that the initial 
business plan for Google actually anticipated a much smaller revenue from advertising um, and, and in fact warned of the risks of an advertising funded search engine, which I thought was really just quite amazing that we've we've ended up with something so different. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's right. So it's still actually online, and I encourage anyone to read it just because I feel it's like it's like a fundamental document for understanding why the internet is the way it is. But um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin's kind of original paper that they wrote um, on sort of describing the Google algorithm uh, has an appendix where uh, uh, where where basically they talk about the perverse influence of of advertising on search results, um, and and they come out against it. Right. And, and again, I think it's just this beautiful story about how, you know, there's the, sort of the business you create and then the business that you end up with. And, and I think advertising ended up being such a powerful way to make money that it kind of is this kind of gravitational well that has sucked a lot of other things uh, into in, in its wake. Absolutely. So if, if it's not advertising, um, what would finance the Internet? You know, the way I, I put this, the metaphor I've been using is... Um, you know, you, you may recall that scene from Indiana Jones, right, where he has to remove the idol from the pedestal and then put an object of similar weight on the pedestal, right? And if you think about the idol being programmatic advertising, right, the question is, okay, can I replace it with something of equal weight? Uh, or is there nothing that will kind of replace it at that scale? Um, and I, you know, I, I there, there's some friends of mine who I would say are, are kind of optimists. They're like, if we only innovated hard enough, we could find something that did a perfect replacement with online advertising in terms of sort of the money that you that you would generate and the speed at which you could generate it. I'm a little bit skeptical about that. Um, I just don't see that model out there right now. Um, you know, people have mooted things like, oh, well, we could use sort of micro payments coordinated through the blockchain. And it seems like very speculative to me at the moment. Um, but again, I, I kind of hope that like in some ways, if we can deflate the ad market, we create room for that kind of innovation. And who knows, I'm, I'm happy to be kind of surprised, right, if we can come up with something that replaces it perfectly. You know, currently the advertising-driven internet is, is sort of free, or at least notionally, right? But if we move to kind of maybe more subscription-based um, business models, it would cease to be free, again, notionally. Um, what, what does that mean sort of in terms of access to the internet? Um, and its implications for, you know, creativity and expression, because no doubt this sort of access to the internet for at, at zero cost has sort of been quite a dem democratizing force. Yeah, exactly. And and I do think that I, I end up being a little bit of a moderate on these issues, right? I think there's two schools of thought. One of them is we shouldn't have any advertising on the internet whatsoever. Um, and I don't know, I tend to be a little bit, you know, um, a little bit more positive perhaps on, on advertising, right? And I do think that there are these benefits to the advertising business model. And one of them is the one that you're pointing out, uh, which is that services can be given away for free. Uh, and that has a huge, huge access benefit, right? Because there's lots of people who couldn't pay subscriptions. I think the perverse side of that is that I think we've been able to kind of um, kick the can down the road on some of these questions, right? Because the platforms have been free for so long. Um, that we haven't had to really ask really hard questions about, you know, is having access to a search engine something as important as having access to electricity or fuel coming to your home? Um, and and I, I actually think that, like, um, I would prefer a world in which we move to subscriptions. 
Um, and we say, look, the, the government's going to actually subsidize access in a number of cases. And I think there's hard sort of philosophical questions that need to be worked out there, right? Which is, okay, where do you draw the line? What is really a fundamental service on the internet versus a optional service on the internet? Um, but I do think that's the kind of question that we should be having. Um, just because I think there are so many questions about the sort of sustainability of advertising being sort of like the monoculture that's driving all these platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so in, in addition to kind of like you've got the kind of consequentialist argument about, um, you know, having the Internet uh, supported by an over overinflated um, advertising market. But then we've also talked about these more fundamental concerns about the design of the Internet that is driven by advertising. And there's another there's another fundamental concern, right, which is that advertising is driven by data. And that means, you know, continuous surveillance of us um, and collection of our data. Um, so to what extent do, do those kind of concerns about privacy and surveillance feature in your thinking on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is in some ways the return to what we were talking about earlier. I think an interesting subtlety of the Cambridge Analytica case, right? Which is, do we, do we disagree with what Cambridge Analytica did because they created a mind control ray and could persuade people to vote in a certain way? Or do we disagree and feel bad about what Cambridge Analytica did because they basically committed a huge privacy violation? Um, and I actually think the latter, right? Because I think the evidence that they actually did have this persuasive power is extremely uh, sort of limited. Um, and, and so I do think that um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about since the book came out is the idea that sort of the collection of data justifies itself, right? We've created a marketplace where we say, oh, the more data that you have to target, the better. Well, I think that creates a lot of incentives to collect more and more data, regardless of whether or not it's actually particularly effective. Um, and that has huge privacy consequences. Um, and so I do think that there is this very deep relationship between you know, sort of the collection of data um, as sort of justifying this market. Um, and, and, and I do think that like one of the kind of unchecked consequences is just like that there's a huge price, uh, there's a huge profit to be made right now on aggregating this data um, in a way that, that I think is, is harmful. True. Um, another concept you introduce in the in the book is that of commodification, um, and I think you you know you point out that our information has always been collected and it's been used to sort of shape our preferences. Um, advertising is not a new uh, new thing, um, but it's the commodifications. It's really the scale of data collection and the packaging of that data um, for sale that is what's truly problematic. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. Um... You know, I, I do think that there is a little bit of, you know, I think that there, there is there is sort of like this idea in the book, right, which is that, yeah, that the commodification has basically created uh, a, well, a bunch of problems, right? And one, one of them is basically like, how do we sort of like package up and force people to behave online to make it more measurable um, for the advertising economy? I think that's one. Um, but I think also the other one is that the commodification has also obscured really what sort of like the advertising is attempting to capture, right? Because I, we have to go back to the question of like what it is that we're buying and selling in the ad market. And what we're not buying and selling is like literally attention. We're just buying the right to display something to someone that we, we hope is someone on the other side. Um, and, and I think that commodification has kind of in some ways allowed for sort of the thing bought and sold to really differentiate from like the thing that's really that people are trying to buy, right? Which is, which is people's attention. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that there are there are kind of it's a two sided problem here uh, created by commodification. So the two thousand and seven uh, subprime mortgage crisis ended in um, a, a global financial 
crisis, a, a big recession and, and widespread economic hardship. Um, to what extent do you think that the subprime attention crisis could have similarly um, disastrous systemic consequences? Yeah, I think it has very important consequences. Um, and, you know, the contrast I draw is basically between the 2001 crisis in startups, right, the, the sort of tech, the first tech bubble, um, and the 2007-2008 crisis, right? And, and one of the theories for why 2007-2008 created such a global recession, whereas the, the first tech bubble really did not, um, is, is because mortgages were sort of interlinked throughout the economy. Um, and, and I sort of use that as a way of thinking about what is the impact of a downturn in the ad market. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think that it is, it is a great deal more than, you know, Mark Zuckerberg having a billion less dollars in his bank account. Um, because we have to think about all of the things that advertising currently creates uh, and makes possible on the Internet. So the first one, of course, is all the free services, right? And, and the access that we talked about earlier, right? So how many things do you rely on an everyday basis, which are just subsidized through advertising, that if suddenly there was a downturn and we had to put, you know, paywalls in front of, like, what is, what is the impact of that, right? So I think that's one. The second one is, of course, that there's a huge ecosystem of media, journalism, you know, sort of popular discourse that sort of sits on this ecosystem that we've built, right? So, you know, regardless of whether or not you're a small local paper or, you know, one of the biggest media companies in the world, you rely on programmatic advertising nowadays. Um, and then I think the final one, which is sort of a weird one that I think a lot about is, um, you know, all of the things that these companies invest in that are also sort of subsidized through advertising as a matter of R&D. So I, I used to work at Google, used to work in sort of AI and machine learning at Google, and those labs basically are subsidized through advertising, right? They're not by and large sort of, um, you know, cash generators for the company. Um, so I do think that even like some areas of sort of emerging research uh, are, are, are potentially touched by a downturn um, in, in the marketplace. And so I do think that the impact is like a lot more widespread uh, than, than we think. So, so yeah, it could have knock-on effects, of course. But I mean, in the way that there is an immediate intangible impact someone defaults on a mortgage and the securities backed by those mortgages default and people lose their homes and banks exposed to those instruments take a major financial hit and so on. I mean, are we talking about that kind of economic fallout from the implosion of the subprime attention market? I mean, I mean, is this really comparable? Yeah, I mean, I think so you're putting good pressure on the argument. And I agree, right? I do think that, um, Right, like in terms of what we're largely talking about here is widespread implications of a downturn in one market that we might not immediately think of. But maybe one thing that is a kind of rejoinder uh, to where you're going with this, right, is um, that programmatic advertising is increasingly kind of finding its way into a bunch of markets that it hasn't before. Um, so you can think about, say, like Spotify, right? So Spotify, right, is, is you know, podcasting. Um, uh, but they're increasingly trying to kind of introduce programmatic advertising into a whole realm of sort of audio that it didn't exist in before. Um, and so I do think that there has been sort of, you know, in some ways, programmatic advertising has been so powerful. Uh, other industries have attempted to kind of make itself, remake themselves in programmatic advertising's image. And so I do think that there is kind of this time element, which is sort of the longer that we leave it on for, I think the more markets we'll find will be sort of converted and dependent on this, on this sort of financial model. Um, and so I do think that the, the implications are going to become sort of increasingly widespread going, on, uh, going forward. So what needs to be done to diffuse the time bomb uh, to minimize the potentially systemic fallout from the subprime attention crisis? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm I'm a fan of a couple routes here. You know, one of them is we've already talked a little bit about regulation in the space, and and I do think that there's an opportunity uh, for regulations that sort of increase transparency in the marketplace. And and part of the idea there is basically that there's so many sort of shenanigans going on uh, that if you were only able to kind of like uncover more of it, uh, it would cause sort of expectations around the market to be a lot more realistic. Um, the second idea that I have is I do think that there's room for activism in the space um, and that I think there is room for people to actively sort of like being putting sand into the gears of this marketplace to sort of slow it down. Um, and, and I think both of those things, what they tend to do is they basically uh, sort of reduce the amount of trust in the market. Right. And, and I think that's powerful as a way of kind of slowing down what's going on um, before we sort of have like, you know, a crisis of confidence that creates a much sharper decline in the market. And. I mean, another kind of route that um, you talk about in the book and which is uh, receive, receiving, you know, increasing intention, um, both sides of, of the Atlantic is to really break up um, the big uh, digital um, companies, the big, the big tech companies um, on antitrust grounds. Um, do you think that uh, would address the problems you're discussing in the book? Yeah, I think it's worth kind of looking at the broader context here. Uh, so, sorry, let me answer your question directly. I mean, so I, I don't think antitrust deals with the problems of the ad market, um, right? Like, I think there it would make the market more competitive and therefore potentially more transparent. Uh, but I'm actually not convinced that that would, be, that would be the case, right? But I think at least in the United States, it's really interesting thinking about how sort of the politics of the ad economy will play out, particularly in 2021, uh, as we have a new administration coming in. And, and I think there's just kind of like a general kind of question floating around, right? Which is, what do we do with the big tech companies? Um, and at least in the U.S., the way that the discussion is going is that, you know, antitrust is considered a little too severe as an option. Uh, but people still want something dramatic to occur with the tech companies. And so I do think that weirdly regulating the ad markets may end up becoming sort of like a consensus choice um, sort of in the, in, in the, in the politics of all of this. Um, and so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how it sort of plays out. But, but I do think that in some ways antitrust will be sort of like the, the much more severe stick uh, that makes a lot more other proposals possible, politically feasible. Absolutely. Tim, thank you so much for joining Technology and Prose. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Tim Huang, author of Subprime Attention Crisis, Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet. On the next episode of Technology and Prose, I'll be joined by Ryan Abbott to talk about his new book, The Reasonable Robot. So if, you know, you want to drive instead of having your self-driving Tesla take you, you know, to the office for the day and you cause an accident, well, if it's an accident that a self-driving car wouldn't have caused, you should be liable for it. Thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>